Welcome to Tech Vines, episode 39. Um, nice to see by three. I'm your host, tonight, Colin Gallagher, and I am joined, as usual, by the fabulous Scott Delandy. Oh, I get the fabulous title tonight. Hi, everybody. And the fierce Melissa Gurney-Green. Hello, hello. And we have a special guest tonight, a awesome friend of mine who is passionate about wine and is surrounded by technology generally, uh, my good friend Seema Takari. Seema, hi. Hi. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. Hi, Seema. Nice, Hello. nice to have you on the show. Welcome, our first, our first guest ever. Yes. Yay. Thank you. I'm very honored. So Seema is on the show because I think she's a sommelier. She's going to tell me that. <laughs> but Seema is a master at tasting wine, um, and explain a little about that. Um, so I've been studying wine, but more from an academic perspective. So not the court of master sommeliers, but more from the wine and spirits educational trust side. So I'm not a SOM, but I have the equivalent of an advanced certificate from the court of master sommeliers. So, um, if you have seen, um, any of those movies, Psalms, I'm like, just before they take the big exam. <laughs> I'm at that level. And what is the exam? Um, the, the exam for me will be for Master of Wine, hopefully. Um, it will be something like a three-day exam of um, much, much writing and then three flights of 12 blind wines. And so and you have to identify them blind. Yeah, I think I think they do, do divide them up a little bit, though. So, you know, you get your fortifieds, you get your sparkling and then you get your reds and whites. And so you get a little bit of a break. It's not like 36 wines. <laughs> and that's that's probably why they spread it out over three days. Yes. And right. so you study by drinking. You do, yes, and you take copious notes. So I actually, this notebook that I have is just tasting sheets. And so wow. you mark everything and you're supposed to retain the flavor memories as much as possible. So that, that book is like the size of a phone book. I mean, that thing is huge. So how long did that take you to build that entire book? I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, so I've been studying, I mean, I didn't get serious about it until about 2016, but since 2014, I've been studying. And so, yeah, um, you have to, we drink anything, you know, when I'm taking classes, we drink anything from six to 12 wines a night. Um, and you know, you go through and you make some notes about the producer, you're supposed to know about the producer, you're supposed to know about the grapes, you're supposed to know about the region. You know, this whole thing about vintages, that's more of a psalm thing. I mean, we need to know a little bit about what age and, you know, what the, the climate conditions were, but we don't do like vintage charts, you know. Cool. So. So, um, so anyway, we're going to ask you about the wines we're drinking tonight and see what, you know, t test you a little bit. You can test us in, in terms of what we should be tasting. So okay. each of us brought a, a wine or two, right? Um, Scott, what are you drinking tonight? Okay, so I was, I, I have been looking forward to this since we talked about it uh, on the last episode. So um, I did do a bit of research 
and I wanted to do an Italian, but I wanted to do something that I've actually, I've seen, but I've never tried and I didn't know much about it. So I did a little bit of research and I ended up going with a Barolo. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I know. So I didn't know what it was. And then oh. I did a little research and I said, Ooh, this will be interesting. So I haven't tried it yet. So I had a glass of just this red blend a little bit earlier, but I have not tried it yet because I wanted to know a little bit about it before I actually tried it. So I kind of know what to, to sort of look for. So is it from Piedmont? Uh, it is not. I don't think so. It's uh, Mia Fori is the, uh, is the label on it. So. Okay. So um, if you don't mind. So Barolo gonna, is I'm, in Piedmont. I'm, Barolo is yeah. the place. So it should be in Piedmont. It won't necessarily say it. If it's not from the actual Barolo area, then it should just say the grape, which is Nebbiolo. Yes. Correct. That's exactly what it is. Wow. So go ahead and taste it, Scott. Tell us what you're tasting. So my my first observation is that it's it's not a very dark wine, right? So it's, it's, it's much lighter. Then definitely a you know a cab or you know um, you know my usual um, Tuscan red, um, so that's like the first thing that I notice is that it is definitely a, uh, a lighter wine. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and give it a shot. So that is spectacular. So um, that is. It's on the sweet side, I would say, um, but not like too sweet. Um, it's very uh, smooth. Um, I definitely don't get an oaky feel from it. It feels I can definitely feel kind of the 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 the, the berries and the sweetness of the berries. Um, but it is, you know, again, it, it looks a lot lighter than than a lot of the reds that I've had, and it uh, and it tastes a lot uh, a lot lighter. And, you know, the, the research that I did on it, I just, you know, looked, it was that, you know, uh, as far as the aging process, it's, it's typically aged a lot longer than the other wines. And the grapes that they use are grown uh, in an area that's a little bit different. It's not as high up, so it's not as exposed to a lot of the fog that some of the other grapes within, um, within that area um, are, are generally exposed to. So that's, that's what I picked up. I don't know if I got it right or wrong, or but Seema's going to tell me. <laughs> Seema, so Seema, the, que- the, the, the big question is, am I enjoying this wine? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. If you say it's spectacular, absolutely. It, it is spectacular. It really is. So tell me what year it's from. So this is where vintage does count sometimes. So this is 2014. 2014. Okay. So it's had um, six years in the bottle. And in general, Barolos are not released before they're about three to five years um, aged. So it's probably, um, you know, it probably sat in a cellar for, you know, three years, say it was released in 2017. And so it's been actually it's been in the bottle now for three years, probably. And so it probably needs to breathe a little bit. Okay. Um, and Barolo is made with this grape called Nebbiolo. And Nebbiolo is um, derived from the word foggy. 
So it's from a fog. It generally comes from a foggy area and it's a little bit fussy to grow. And so it does need that kind of exposure because there is fog that rolls through there and then it needs to dry out. Um, and it is a light colored wine, but you probably feel a lot of tannins, right? You probably feel a lot of structure in your mouth. Like it, it pulls the, the moisture away and it, um, it fills the entire palate from the tip of your tongue all the way to the back of your tongue. There is a lot of flavor. Absolutely. Yes. And, and again, the, the, I, I'm just really surprised by just how light it is in terms of the, uh, the color and the saturation on the, on the color. It, it is, you know, it, it's lighter than you'd see with a, with a Pinot Noir, I think. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, it's one of these wines that, that is a little bit deceptive that way. Barolo is uh, partnered with Barbaresco and Barolo is considered the more masculine because it tends to be um, much more chewy, you know, with a lot more tannin and body and Barbaresco is supposed to be a little bit more feminine. It's a little bit of a cooler area. So you get more aromatics, but the, the typical smells that you should get are tar and roses. That's how people always describe Barolo. I don't know if I smell the tar or the roses, but I know it's good. <laughs> I would, I would, I would definitely get this again. Again, I've never had it before, and I've seen it, and it was always like, oh, I should, I should try that. So the 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 homework assignment for this one was to um, pick something that you have never had before. So I was trying to stay um, true to the rules. But yes, this was uh, this was good, very good. That's awesome. Yeah, and you were talking about oak. They sometimes um, use, they usually use oak, but they can also use chestnut. Um, and they use the huge barrels called botti instead of the bariques, which are the smaller barrels. So they could be like in thousand liter um, botti. And so that means they get less exposure to the oak because it's more wine in contact. Right, more, right. Right. more, more wine, less, 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 less right. Yep. Yep. Fewer, fewer barrels, more wine. More wine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's why you're not getting as much wood in it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need it, you know, because it's so structured and it has so many tannins. Oak actually gives tannins to the wine. Um, and of course, it gives a little bit of micro oxygenation. And some, depending on how new the wood is, you get like the baking spices and vanilla. Um, but Barolo is so. Um, rich and powerful that it really doesn't need that sort of thing. So they often use old wood um, and it only needs a little bit of microoxygenation. So. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. And so Melissa, what are you drinking tonight? Oh no. So I've got a red blend. It's called Upshot and it's a 2017 red blend. It's got like five different wines in there. So, um, I think it's interesting. It's um, a little lighter than I usually go with and uh, definitely not very fruity, in my opinion. Um, there's there's a lot of discussion on the label around fruitiness and stuff, and it's got this amazing kind of front end label that looks very nerdy. So it's got like specs on pH and stuff like that and time in the barrel and when it was harvested and and all that stuff. 
on it as, as well as like percentages of the types of grapes used. So I thought it was pretty neat looking and figured I'd give it a try. Um, it, as I said, not a lot of berries, definitely kind of a woody flavor um, for me. Uh, Y'all are gonna kill me, but honestly, the aftertaste is a little bit like sucking on a popsicle stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's probably a terrible way to describe it, but <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> the the least cultured among us. <laughs> Where is it from? Um, Sonoma County. And what are the grapes in it? Um, Merlot, Zinfandel, Malbec, Riesling, and Petit Verdot. The Riesling is an interesting add to a red blend because it's because Riesling is not red. Yes. <laughs> do you do you smell any flowers coming out of it? Like, is it kind of floral or is it really just kind of earthy and popsicle sticky? There's there's definitely a hint of floral. Okay. That's that's a super cool blend, actually. I'm surprised that, you know, with Merlot and Zinfandel in there that you don't smell more fruit. Maybe it was, you know, picked early or something. I'm not sure. But the Petit Verdot is probably where you're getting a lot of that earthiness, you know, and um, and that woodiness because Petit Verdot ripens very, very slowly and late, and it tends to be very high tannic. And so it adds a lot of the the spice and heaviness to the mix. And maybe they added the Riesling just to lighten that up. I'm not sure. I've never heard of that kind of a, a blend before, <laughs> but it's super cool. What, what was it? What was it again, Melissa? I want to write that down. Uh, what, the name of the wine or the blend? Yeah, yeah, the, the wine. The wine is Upshot. Upshot. Now I'm curious. And you, said, and you said there's zit in there too? Yes. Yeah, they grow a lot of zit in Sonoma County. So it's interesting that they blended it with other things. Yeah, yeah. The Riesling and Bordeaux is like a really small percent. Okay. But oh, they, they, the other three are... are oh, they've got percentages eight. listed too? Yeah, like yeah. the Merlot is 31, the Zinfandel is 31, the Malbec is 30, and then 5% Riesling and 3%... Petit Verdot. Yeah, that tends to be um, in Bordeaux, they tend to use very little of the Petit Verdot because it ripens so late. And so um, they usually do it when they need to give more heft to a wine, you know, if they have a relatively light uh, cuvee that year or sapage, as they say, the mix of grapes. That's really cool. This is so fun. <laughs> so I am drinking a Chilean wine. Mm -hmm. I am drinking uh, Camino de Chile um, from the Valle Central, and it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so, uh, it's the light bike. Uh, anyhow. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to try something. It was different. I have, we haven't done anything from Chile, and I saw it, and it would be interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm a little surprised by it. Um, for... A cab, for a cab, it's light. Um, in color, a little bit, um, as I hold it up, it definitely has a lot of, a little bit of wood, a little bit of acid flavor, something, something, you know, 
biting almost. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's definitely got a lot of tannins. Um, I don't see. I remember you telling me you taste with the front of the mouth and with the back of the mouth separately. Kind of concentrate on those areas. This definitely hits more front of the mouth with that sort of with that sort of you know little acid hit to it, and then um, and then you sort of get wood and and, some, and the tannins that sort of follow that. Are you smelling some green pepper in there? Some bell pepper? Yeah, it's a, it's a little herbaceous. Like, yeah, I don't know if it's if it's something green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Um, it may be a little bit less ripe than they may, than they allow in California. Chile is is very similar to California actually because it has the coastal range, the central valley, and then they've got the Andes. The Andes obviously are much higher than like the Mayacamas or whatever. Um, but uh, I'm surprised that from the central valley, it's it's that lean. But they do have this current that comes up the coast. Um, I want to say it's the Humboldt current. It may be something else. I think it's a Humboldt current um, that comes up and it cools down the the atmosphere quite a bit. And so it's probably um, slightly cooler than California and possibly a little bit earlier picked because in California, they like that long hang time um, and you sometimes get slightly overripe flavors. Um, but in general, Cabernet does tend to be a high acid. It's considered a high acid, high tannin wine. Um, so I think because California allows them to ripen a little bit more, the acids get, go, you know, um, start to diminish. Whereas in Burgundy, I mean, in Bordeaux, you would definitely taste that acid and it's softened by the Merlot and, um, yeah, and sometimes, you know, they use Cabernet Franc, which ripens a little bit earlier as well. Um, so, yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. You guys picked some great wines. Um, should I tell you about what I have here? Or? Yes, please. Yes, yes, please. Yes. Okay, so I am unfortunately not drinking tonight because I'm I'm going to have a procedure tomorrow. Um, but I took out two of my favorite wines and they're called Emeritus and they're literally sort of an Emeritus project by this guy, Bryce Jones, who, um, used to be the owner or the winemaker at, excuse me, at Sonoma Couture. And if you know Sonoma Couture, it's one of these oaky Chardonnay type of very classic California wines and if you look at his pinots they are a completely different style they're lean they're beautiful they're clean there's a purity of fruit they're aromatic everything is dry farmed he uses natural yeasts um everything is just meticulously done and some of his training was done in europe in burgundy so the Hallberg Ranch is like their hallmark wine, um, which is really great. But then he did a, a special project with, um, I don't know if you can see the label. It says Aubert et Brice. So Aubert and Bryce. Aubert being Aubert de Villon. 
who is the winemaker at Domaine de la Romane Conti, which, as you know, is the probably the most expensive wine on earth. I think uh, one bottle goes for like twenty one thousand dollars. And the story goes that uh, Aubert may have brought some of his clones from the vineyard over. And so this wine, um, the Aubert and Brice, is made with just two clones. Um, and uh, they're a tribute to him from the Sonoma Coast. He actually owns a small vineyard there himself, but they collaborated on this and it's a tribute to him. And so it's one of these very special wines that if you can get it, get it. <laughs> um, but the so whole that it's it's not something that's like regularly available. You have to like seek it out specifically, is what you're saying. Uh, they probably have some back stocks there. They may only have it in magnums right now, but I think they still have a couple, a few bottles, um, in their stock. But yeah, how much okay. is it per bottle? Maybe a hundred and thirty. Expense report time, Scott. <laughs> Writing it all down. <laughs> but the Hulberg Ranch is more in the forty dollar range, and this is an excellent, excellent wine. And that that uses eleven different clones that are grown in in on their property, right on. Um, it goes through Sonoma, so it's the Gravenstein Highway. I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with that, but it's right there and it's a gorgeous little vineyard. So And it's all it's all Pinot. It's it's eleven clones of Pinot. Yes. And they also make a white, which is very unusual. So they don't use Pinot Blanc, they use Pinot Noir, and then they make a Blanc de Noir still wine, which is also really fabulous. So they just take the skins off and then yeah, exactly. Gently press, skins off immediately, no cold maceration or anything. So it has a lot of the Pinot character, weirdly, um, but it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't take any of the color or the tannin. Yeah, so folks are listening, the color and the tannin comes from, in reds, come from sitting, on the, on the grapes sitting on the skins after they've been picked, when they're when they're they're crushed, they're macerated, the skins, the seeds and stuff sort of sit there, and, and those flavors, the color, come out into the into the juice, and then is for fermented to become the wine, right, Sima? Right, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> well, excellent. Um, any other wine topics? Anything we want to talk about before we switch to technology? The technology is wine, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes it is. Yes. Let's <laughs> just roll with that. Yep. So yeah. So we, we were doing we were doing wine tasting, and now we're doing wine technology. And by wine technology, I meant anything you use to help taste, drink um, the wine. I think the, the number one question that I have, and Simi, you can ask, is should you let your wine aerate? Should you actually let it sit? Do you how long and how long should you let it sit and when? Um, you know. Again, I'm I'm less finicky about these things. Sometimes wines do need to open up. The main thing for me is that they be at the right temperature. Um, and so the whites shouldn't be too cold and the reds shouldn't be too warm. Um, and so, you know, I would definitely, if a, if a wine has been sitting in a bottle for six, eight, 10 years, then definitely open it up, decant it. Um, 
if you feel like, you know, go ahead and sniff the bottle, you know, even take a little pour out of it. If you feel like the tannins are too stiff or if it's just being too um, reticent, you know, and you want it to open up, then um, if it's not too, um, too delicate, then you can even do something called a hard decant. And so if it's a younger wine and you just feel like it needs a little bit more air and a little bit more encouragement to open it up, just take a decanter and turn the bottle just upside down. Just pour it out hard so that it, the air kind of flows through it. Um, but if it's been sitting in the bottle for six, eight, ten years, then definitely decant it. If you just open the cork, you're only letting in a little tiny bit of air. So you'd have to open it, you know, hours ahead to, to let it aerate out that way. So do decant it. Now, is, the, is decanting the same as aerating it? So there are, you know, you can get these aerators. So as you pour it, it forces the uh, the oxygen, the air into the wine. Is that, will that help speed it along or is that doing something different? Um, I don't really believe in the aerators. Like I said, you know, you can kind of determine the rate at which you're pouring. And if you do the hard decant, then you're probably getting as much air in as, as an, an aerator. aerator yeah. um, it depends. You know, s some wines do need to be handled a little bit more carefully. And so the aerator will, you know, if there's any gunk in the wine, you know, the, the sediments that have settled out, then the aerator will filter it usually. And so um, my husband does use um, one of those, um, I don't know, it, it's this little thing. Um, yeah. with a little basket in it, you know, and it takes the gunk out. So you don't want to hard decant an old bottle. So that might work for that. But I think just carefully pouring, you know, in, in old times, what they used to do was the butler would hold the, both the bottle and the decanter up to the light and then pour, mm -hmm. you know, you settle, let the bottle settle. So you put it upright and you let it sit like that for a couple of hours so that all the sediments fall. And then you pour it very carefully to keep the sediments out. And that's probably enough aerating. You know what? That's a great suggestion because I know one of the big problems that Colin has is that when his butler is done <laughs> serving dinner, he's standing there for, what, two hours and looking for something to do. Now he can hold Colin's wine oh and he my. can help open it up a little bit. Sorry, Colin. All good. All good. I was gonna make I was gonna make a mind, but I, I think yeah. if any of us had a butler, it would probably be you. So that's why. I, I, I actually, I actually, I actually asked that same question to, uh, uh, I think a uh, guy who owned a, a wine job, and he may have been a psalm. Um, he was doing a little tasting, and I asked that same question. I said, "When do you use an aerator?" And he, he was big on opening the wines and letting them sit for a couple hours. And I said, "Well, could you use one of those aerators?" He's like, "I only use them when." At the end of the night, when I realize I don't have enough wine, I need to open a new bottle <laughs> and serve it quickly. Um, um, but he, yeah, but he definitely was—he definitely was big on decanting. Um, and um, and by the way, I love his—I I gotta find him. Um, he had his wine shop in um, Santa Million, and his—the logo for his wine shop was the um, a red, mostly most semicircle, but it was the imprint of a wine bottle on paper that had sort of you know with the wine he dripped. And so I thought that was just a cool way to represent your, your story. Like, I was like, why do you have this weird half circle, you know, thing? I was like, no, it's a, it's actually the imprint of a, of a wine it's bottle. A wine stain. A, That's awesome. Yeah, a wine stain, yeah. Yeah, nice. 
Cool. So temperature was my, I was actually, we weren't in the aeration, but temperature is a big one for me. That was the one I was going to mention for technology, refrigeration. Um, Because I believe that we serve reds at too warm a temperature in this country, particularly California. Um, my friend Randy and I, who see my nose, I went, went for, uh, for dinner once in California. They served us a red, and it was like room temperature, but it was like you know ninety degrees. And I made them oh. put in the fridge. I made them put in the fridge for for ten minutes just because before they drank it. So what what's the proper temperature for a red scene? What's the proper temperature for a white? Um, I think for a white, you know, somewhere between fifty four, fifty five, somewhere in that range is probably perfect. Uh, no cooler, you know, so if you're going to stick it in the fridge, then only keep it there for an hour because the fridge will, will cool it down too much. Champagne should be colder, um, but in general, whites shouldn't be that cold. And for uh, reds, probably 70, 75, somewhere in that range. Really? I like my little, uh, yeah, that's interesting because I, I usually do it. What I'll do is like if I'm going to have, so I, I'm in the New England area. So before I open up a red, I will take it and I'll put it like in the garage because the garage is probably like, you know, it's definitely cooler than the house, but that'll drop it, to, uh, you know, definitely below room temperature. So I'm probably upper 50s, lower 60s, but you're saying that that's actually too cold for the red because the white I would keep in the refrigerator until I was ready to crack it open. So. I've been doing this all wrong. Well, you know, it's all on preference. In the summer, people say that you should refrigerate your Gamay or, you know, some Pinots that drink a little bit like a rosé. So rosés should be cool, obviously. Um, but it, it really is a matter of, of preference. You know, I think that sometimes... Uh, for me, anyway, you know, if a wine, a red wine is too cold, then I get a lot of the the tannins and the astringency more strongly, and maybe some acid, and it loses a bit of the fruit. So I I like to be able to taste the fruit, and um, and so I prefer mine just a little bit warmer than maybe someone else might. So I'm going to ask you a question because you're a professional. We're all professionals <laughs> here to certain degrees, right? So if you know somebody that drinks wine and they put an ice cube in it do they deserve to be mocked or is there like a legitimate i my god i get so many i just want to know so if i'm there and someone says oh can you put an ice cube in that how am i to react because normally i'm like all right this is you know this is i, I wouldn't say unacceptable but this is a red flag nonetheless you drink sangria i'm just gonna call you out one, you drink sangria. Two, it's not whiskey. So, so, <laughs> so let let let's seem as thought about it for a yes. second, and, and we're allowed to be judgmental on the show. So. Yeah, you know, within within boundaries. So, so if you have that person that orders, you know, whatever, you know, the Chianti or whatever, and says throw an ice cube in it, what? Whatever. A red with an ice cube. Oh god! Like a white with an ice cube is, is bad, but a red with an ice cube is. All right. So yeah. Oh, so you're right. oh my god! Red, oh my god! So I love the red, the is, red is the red is incorrect. Let's say the white. Someone gets a white and puts an ice cube in it, either because they want to make it, you know, they want to dilute it, they want to cool it, they want to do it. Like, what are you doing to a wine? Is that like taking a Picasso and taking out a sharpie and drawing, you know, coloring in between the lines? I mean, what are we doing there to the wine? You know, I, 
<laughs> I, I try not to be a wine snob, but, you know, if you're drinking like a white Zinfandel or something, then it probably needs ice. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, otherwise I would, I, I might offer someone a whiskey stone, you know, okay. the freezer or I don't know. I, I've never <laughs> been faced with that, but I'd, I'd probably I, I... like have to go into the bathroom and laugh a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> My neighbors in Boston always insisted on putting um, wine, ice in their white wine. And it was just awful. It was just like, I, could, I, I did it, but I was like, oh my God, what the hell? You put ice in your wine? My neighbors did. Oh, okay. You they did. They, when I live in Boston, they came over, my neighbors would come over and, and they would I'd give them wine, serve wine, they said, and they would actually put ice in it. And it was just like, particularly the whites, which drove me crazy. Oh. So what's okay. the take on sangria then? Because almost all of that has ice in it, from what I've seen. Well, I mean, sangria is like a cocktail, right? Right. Fair, yeah. Fair. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's, okay. there's ice, there's vodka, there's food. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, sangria is a mix. Why, yeah. yeah, wine okay. isn't the base ingredient. Isn't the base ingredient? It's probably you know what kind of it, it, you use it to dilute the other parts of the alcohol, probably. No, wine is the base of it. They just enhance it with with other things. But it, again, it, it it's a mix of, of a lot of things. So it, you know, you can... yeah, fruit and yeah, triple sec, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I've made it, so <laughs> so I'm guilty too. But... Yeah. No, no, there's nothing wrong with. with I mean, sangria is a exactly. great wine-based drink, right? Exactly. I mean, but it's a cocktail, so you know, it's not wine, wine. Um, but you hear these stories, you know, of um, people who buy Bordeaux, you know, as a status symbol, and they have no idea what to do with it because they think it's gross. Um, because it can be austere, it can be earthy, it can be, you know, it can be challenging sometimes if you don't have a big thick steak with you to, to cut the, the tannins. Um, and so you hear about people like, pouring Coke into a $500 bottle of wine, ah, you know? Ah, ah. I know. I know. Are you, are you pour, talking about... I wouldn't pour Coke into a $30 bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, oh, God, I can't even imagine the flavor of that. <sighs> I know. I know. But, um, yeah, and a lot of the buyers will come through. They don't know, you know, for some of these big import companies, they don't really know anything about wine. And so they look at the numbers that someone has given and, you know, they won't even taste the wine. They'll come in and they'll say, I want, you know, 80 cases of this. And you have to decide whether you want to sell it to them or not at that point. Oh, that's gross. I can't, I can't say it on air. Can I? It's yes, gross. Can. Yes, okay. Can. So I would say for a flavor profile for Bordeaux and Coke, as an example, that sounds like Dr. Pepper puke. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's my snobby Midwestern like roots coming out, but that's gross. <laughs> can I, so, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. I'm changing topics just a little bit and going back to the technology. I've seen a lot of Coravin out in the wild and this this uh, device that kind of punctures your um, cork and uh, allows you to pour and and 
contain the wine to where you may have one glass and then save it for later. Have, have you tried any of this and what's your opinion on it? Um, I actually rely on Coravin a lot because, um, you know, I, I do have to blind taste wines. And so, you know, at various points, we'll have Coravin, you know, maybe 60 wines down in our cellar. And, you know, my husband comes up with three or four of them, you know, just in glasses so that I can I can taste them. And so we do rely on it. The one thing I've kind of noticed is, you know, the, the gas that you put in is argon and it's heavier than air. So it coats it and it keeps it from oxidizing. Um, the, the issue is you have to keep the bottles upright at that point. So you, you can't really keep it that long because the corks might still dry out. And if you use the Coravin too many times, then you have too many holes in the cork. So you have to be a little bit careful with it. But in general, it works really well. The argon is fabulous. I'm surprised they use argon. I, would, I thought they would be using nitrogen or something, because I know when they make wine, they use nitrogen a lot, and CO2 particularly, to, which is also heavier to keep the oxygen away. Um, but right. it's argon, huh? Yeah. That's the Corvin technology. I think there are some competitors out there now that use some other technology, but, um, but Corvin uses argon. So how long can you keep the wine once you've punctured with Corvin? In theory, for years. Um, in my experience, they generally last about three, three, four months. Okay. We usually don't have that problem. We usually finish the wine. That was <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, if you're just, yeah, okay. And have you, what about, have, have you ever seen any of those? Actually, yeah, the question I was going to ask is, uh, stemware. Uh, I am a big fan of the stemless glasses. Um, and I have said this set, this set is really interesting that they stack on top of each other. So you, they're easy to, to keep and you can stack three and put them in a cabinet. It's really nice. Um, easy for me. Um, but I know, you know, that wine purists like glasses with a stem. So your your hand is not touching the wine. Um, what's the what's the, the what's the conventional wisdom on that, Sima? You know, it's it's super interesting. I haven't looked into it that much, but people are coming out with their own wine glasses, like Jancis Robinson, you know, she's like the doyen of wine. Um, she worked with a glassmaker and she created her own glasses. And this website, Wine Folly, has created their own glasses. So people have very, um, very strong ideas about, um, you know, the shape of the glass and whether it has a stem or not. I like the stem just because it's I don't know. There's something more. It's very James Bond, shook and not stirred, very sophisticated. I get it. I get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but I don't. I don't think it makes a difference. You know, people like to to talk about the different shape of the the glass so that it hits your mouth in different places. I don't think that has much of an effect. You know, because you're. I mean, you're not going to swirl the wine every time, but it basically goes into your mouth and your mouth is only so big. Um, I have a little bit of a fetish for Zalto glasses. Um, so they're super thin. They're, um, they're relatively strong given how thin they are. And they just make the wine taste really good. I'm not sure why. 
but I really like my Zaltos. I have to look into that. Yeah, I actually do like when I go to a restaurant. I mean, I do appreciate the stem and the, and the shape of the glass. You know, but for home drinking, I'm I'm sort of casual about it. I'm not gonna, you know, get a. You know, if I'm pouring a, a big red, I'm not gonna get the big you know, the big glasses I have that it should be served in. Um, but I'll aerate it a little and drink it. You know, I'm not, uh, if I, if, again, if I have guests, I may, I may actually do that to impress them myself. So I just go with the, the cheap and easy, you know, stemless ones that I can, you know, stack, <laughs> stack in my cabinet and drink in front of the TV. A little, a little technology side. I find the mean time between failure on the stemless to be infinitely higher than that of stem glass. I think part of it has to do with a lower center of gravity. Um, and that is uh, uh, probably proportionate to whatever time it is and how late it is and how many glasses you've gone through in terms of the, uh, the failure rate of the stemmed versus the, uh, the non-stemmed. No, it's true. For a party, there's nothing like stemless glasses. Part of it is also that my husband has been a bit of a purist. And he, when I wanted to get the stemless glasses, he said no. And so <laughs> I've had, so I, I, so my, my sister-in-law, so I gave her a glass of wine and it was a stemless and she said, she, her comment was, why are you giving this to me in a milk glass? <laughs> <laughs> so now every time I think about the stemless, I always think that it's like milk glass. I, oh, but I do, I always serve champagne in flutes. I don't I mean, I would never serve champagne in, in, in a stemless glass, you know. So for New Year's, you know, I, I broke out, I broke out the flutes uh, to do that. I mean, so it's, it's always, you, you need to, and I think that's to concentrate the bubbles and the flavor into an hour space, right, Simon? Right, exactly. Yeah. You mean your butler broke them out, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My butler's name is Gunner, Simon. <laughs> That's Seema's that's husband. <laughs> oh, my. My butler, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So I am I have a question. Um, and I've been thinking about this. And I know I, I wanted to wait towards the end. Because this is, this is one of those ones. There's three things you never discuss amongst friends. Religion. Politics. You know what the third one is? Red versus white. Oh, <laughs> true. Well, we've so we've had this debate. So I've, I you know I I I love all wine. I am a you know a person of the people. So I don't discriminate red versus white. But there are there are but some. You, but you lean towards white. No, right. I used, you used to. So you used to. I used to lean. I and, and part of the reason why I no longer lean to towards white is because I believe I was mocked for that. So so that forced me. I was peer pressured into it. To uh, I wonder who did that. I wonder who did that. To to expand my um, my range of what I will drink as, you know, things in inventory into Rhine into red and it's been uh it's been definitely a good thing. But when it comes to so this is like the ice cube. This is you know, the ice cube question was kind of easy, obviously. Why are you put an ice cube in a glass of wine? You might as well just get a Zima at that point, right? What's the difference, right? It's the same freaking thing. But now, now we're getting serious. We're all in. Like, we're, we're, most of us are more than half of the bottle in. So now we can start to get a little provocative. So red versus white. If you're out and, you know, what do you want? I mean, the, the, my inclination now is to go red. But sometimes, I don't know, maybe I want to go white. 
No, go ahead. So I, say, I, I my, my inclination is to go red. I mean, if, if I'm out someplace and having dinner, See? I, I will drink un, unless there are exceptions, right? Oh, so, no. If, 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 we're gonna if, pro, if we're going to profile here. So go ahead. Summer, summertime, outside, you know, snacking, right? I will go white. I think, you know, something light. It really depends on, you know, a dinner. Generally, I prefer red unless I'm, Unless it's you know I'm going all fish or something, which is you know, um, but gen generally I'll go for uh, I'll go for red that sort of match that you know the heaviness of the meat or, or whatever I'm having with it. Um, you know, even if I'm mixing up doing like you know a scallop appetizer and then something you know something heavier um, for, for the main course, I'll do a red. Um, yeah, sitting at home alone, I'll do a red. Right, that's my, my inclination. I'll put a, I'll open up a, a cabra's in. I like those big bowl flavors and those sort of you know help me relax and. And, and focus on the line and, and forget, you know, the shit in the world. Um, Melissa, you, what's your preference? Um, mostly red, obviously. Um, <laughs> I think we've done enough on the show mm -hmm. that that shouldn't be a surprise yeah. to anybody. I'd say out in the sunshine, um, warm outside, whatever, um, definitely white or, or like rosé. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot about rosé. I, I, I really got into rosé a couple in the last few years. I think everybody did. I think there's been a big push for rosé. Yes. Over-promoted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I totally do rosé at Thanksgiving, although I don't remember why that tra tradition started, <gasps> but I'm kind of in love with it. I have, I have a feeling it has something to do with, like, inviting friends over for Thanksgiving because we don't have local family. And I think somebody brought a rosé, and we just <laughs> kind of grew into that tradition so, mm, so I, I, that, that's interesting i'm gonna pick that up nice nice yeah I, highly recommend I, I usually do heavier race for thanksgiving but you're right that might be a nice pairing Stephen, your thoughts um for me personally in general i think it's easier to like a red um i'm i'm a little bit more picky about my whites because um i don't like overly scented whites so you know i just can't drink a gewurztraminer and not think soap you know and um and i'm not into the heavily oaked shards either you know they just leave this weird taste in my mouth so you know if and most you know wine um wine lists will have an oak shard and they'll have the stinky um sauvignon blanc as well like from new zealand <laughs> And with food, it's great. But if I'm just drinking that, you know, I find that it's it's a little overpowering. And so I tend to go for reds as well. But I understand. I mean, reds, you know, some people are sensitive to reds. They might get migraines or whatever. So well, a, a lot of people, a lot of people I know who aren't big wine fans or, you know, wine snobs like white. It's sort of it's sort of entry. And, a lot, and they like a lot of the, the sweet whites, I think, because it's um it's easier on the palate and they don't, you know, it doesn't have a lot of the, you know, the harsher flavors that might turn them off. Um, I've had, I've served, you know, Zin to, to local people here in Ohio and it's been too tan, too tannicky for them and they just, they can't stand it. Wow. Um, but yeah. 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 Cause I think of Zin as being very soft. Yeah. The whites, it's, it's funny, you know, because people do tend to get snobby about a sweet Riesling. Um, but Rieslings are magnificent. You know, mm -hmm. they have the high acid, and it really stands up and blends well with the sweetness. 
Um, but it, it really is that kind of soapy character I don't like. So it's a balance. You, you, you get soap in Riesling? No, no. It, mainly in Gewurztraminer. Have you ever had Torontes from Argentina? No. No. Oh, nasty. No. Yeah. Yeah. My go to white generally is a reason. You know, particularly, you know, if I'm, because, yeah. you know, generally if I'm having seafood or something, it's an easy pairing. Right. Um, or if I'm, if I'm sitting out in the summer, it's, uh, yeah, so that's sort of my go to. I'm, I used to be a big shard fan. Um, I, cause I actually, you know, I went the other way. I started with reds. I don't know why. Um, and then sort of, you know, learned to appreciate some whites, um, which I think, you know, I was just saying a lot of people start, started whites and then move up. But, um, so, you know, shard was sort of a gateway because it has that oaky flavor. It has some of those, those sweet things um that come down um and, and you know from from the being in the barrel you know, so it's sort of treated a little bit like a red so sort of it was, an, it was an entree for me to whites but now that i've tasted other whites and sort of learned to appreciate them chardonnay sort of you know it's, it's too oaky for me in, in some cases it's too buttery it's, it's an hot you know it's i i get i get the ballot um you know fermentation on it but it's just i just can't i can't do a lot of of heavy shards it doesn't, it doesn't work on my pot anymore yeah that's how i feel too I really like, um, I just uh, tried uh, Palacios Godeo, G-O-D-E-L-L-O, Godeo, um, from Spain the other day, and it was fabulous. Apparently, it's it's kind of the, the fashionable white now, so. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Well, I have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, that sounds super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of, so what are the, the trends in wine right now? What are the hot wines? Um, you know, I know, you know, Merlot was sort of cast to the ground by after Sideways, right? That, you know, the famous race, fuck the Merlots. Um, um, but I, I'm a big Merlot. I actually like a good Merlot. I think it's, 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 it's a great, you know, red, particularly, you know, pairing well with a lot of foods. Um, but, what, you know, and like, like I mentioned earlier, like I thought Rosé was being heavily promoted like two summers ago. Uh, it was the wine, yeah, I think. Uh, you know, what, what do you think the next hit wines are going to be, Zima? Um, I think Sicily is still going strong. And um, I think Grillo, G-R-I-L-L-O, Grillo from Sicily is just a fabulous white. It's really full-bodied and round. Um, and Norello Mascalese, also from from Sicily, is going strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the the uh, lesser known Spanish um, areas, you know, like Rueda, um, are much more. Um, you see them more on the uh, on the shelves now. You know, it's not just Rioja or the Ribera del Duero. Um, you see the Ruedas. You see some Toro. Um, you even see some of the the southern Spanish wines, you know, from um, from Jumila, uh, Humila. I don't know how to say that. Um, and and they're reds. They're reds. Yeah, the Godeo from from Spain is a white. Um, Albarino seems to be going strong too, yeah. and that's yeah. a really fabulous grape. I, I love an Albarino. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think more of the those kinds of southern ones i think greece is also becoming better known so some asirtico like from santorini people are really 
into these volcanic wines. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh I, I, I love Santorini in general. I think I have to get what, what was the wine again? Asirtico. Asirtico. Okay. Yeah. So for folks who don't know, uh, uh, Santorini is, a, is a, island, a Greek island and it has an active volcano in the middle of it. Um, and it was a sort of round island formed by the volcano. And about 2,000 years ago, the volcano exploded and uh, destroyed most of the island. So what's left is just one half. So there's this curved um, cliff on top of the island that looks down into the water. And the volcano is coming out of the water again, forming a new island, you know, um, you know, a couple a mile off the off the, the coast of the um, the previous cliff edge, and so all the soil is volcanic. Um, the beaches are incredible. Um, you've probably seen it. I mean, you know, it's if you ever see those pictures of the the white houses with the blue roof looking over a cliff when they show Greece, that's Santorini. Um, a lot of the Olympic things to it. Um, it's also featured a lot of movies. Um, I think the first Tomb Raider. Uh, uh, the one with um, what's her face? Um, Angelina. Oh come on, Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie. Yeah, there's where she's diving. That she's diving in Santorini. That that very first scene. Uh, Santorini is gorgeous, but I didn't know they made wine in it. So it's made in volcanic soil. You can make wine in volcanic soil. Yes, yes, and that's um, actually that's why I was talking about Sicily. Uh, a lot of these wines are grown on Mount Etna and Mount Etna just spectacularly overflowed this week. So if you see any pictures, they're amazing. Um, but yeah, volcanic soils are great for wine because they drain so well. And obviously fresh ash isn't going to, to support grapes. But um, once you get a little bit of the microbiota going again, they're really good for, for providing just enough stress that the wines put a lot of energy into the grapes and you get really beautiful wines out of volcanic soils. Yeah, that's something I learned not too, not too long ago is that the wines, the better wines are made from grapes that are stressed. You know, grapes need because, and why is that, Sima? Um, they, they put less energy into the foliage and they put more energy into the grapes because those are their babies, that's their reproduction. And so you get more sugar, you get more flavors. So I have a question. So I, I think, you know, just not being as, you know, sophisticated as everybody here, certainly Colin, uh, see me, and, even, and, and Melissa as well, right? When I go to pick a wine, <laughs> stop. When I go to, so when I go to pick a wine, like I have this, these three, these three things that I look at. I look at the label, I look at the region, and I look at the variety in terms of the wines, right? Right. If you had to rank what's most important, because the way I'll give you my answer, and then you tell me if I'm if I'm correct. Um, what I do is when I look for a wine, I start with the region. Where do I want to go? I want to go to Italy. I want to go to Napa. I want to go, you know, down to Chile, whatever it is, and I'll and I'll kind of start there. From there, you know, I'll go to what's the variety, and I always feel like you know the blend is kind of a, a safe way to go. But you know, depending on you know what we're looking for, you know, we'll. we'll We'll dial into a particular variety. And then it's kind of like the label, right? And, and the label is always the interesting thing because you'll find, you know, two wines from the same region, two wines uh, that have the same variety in terms of the grapes, but the labels are different. And that throws off, that can throw off the price points significantly, right? One's a $20 bottle, one's a $50, $60 bottle. 
and I always try to think about, you know, well, well, what, how am I, you know, am I, am I ranking this right? How much, how much do I weight the label versus the variety versus the region? So I hope this is a, a, a good question because so, are you looking at the age of the wine too, Scott? Actually, never. I no. never look at the age. And I think that for me, as that's a, the way as, I always, you know, that, that's a, a interesting interest. I was just looking at the, the wine that I picked for tonight and it's a 2020. Uh, which I normally would not have picked. I always, you know, I would never pick a, a bread that's, you know, only a year old generally, unless, you know, it's a Beaujolais or something. Um, so that's probably why it's a, it's a little lighter than it hasn't sat that long. Um, so now let's see to give her perspective on it. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's throw the year into that. Let's make that the, the fourth category, right? Because maybe, you know, things that happened in 2017 was a great year for wine. Didn't matter where you were, you know, all the, you know, the stars aligned and, and, didn't you, you didn't have to work too hard all the grapes came out and they were wonderful 2018 horrible year for wine right so i i never even think of that which is kind of a good point yeah i'm um <clears throat> it depends on the wine how young you're okay so you should come back you should say none of that matters the only thing that matters is the shape of the bottle <laughs> it does, does it have a wicker basket weaved into the bottle of the bottle. Let her and answer. Like, <laughs> For crying out loud, let her answer. <laughs> um, you know, the region, the variety, I mean, it's all so subjective, right? But the price point is something you can really, like, sink your teeth into. So, in general, the price point tells you a lot about the wine. Unless it's, you know, one of these crazy things like Whispering Angel, you know, why would anyone pay? I think it was up to like $32 a bottle at some point. And I'm not sure that it's worth $32, you know, $19, I can see 20. But anyway, you know, some of these things are priced a little bit out of whack. But in general, you can, you can tell something from the price point, because um, it matters what area it was grown in and how expensive the land is. It matters, um, how, uh, small or big the yields in the vineyard are. So the higher the yield, the less concentrated the wine, um, the lower the price, essentially. Whereas the lower the yield, you know, the fewer grapes you're getting off of a piece of land, the less juice, the less wine you're getting, the more concentrated the flavors are probably going to be. Um, so it's telling you something about that. Um, it's probably telling you about whether the grapes were handpicked or not. It's probably telling you a little bit about uh, how long it took for it to macerate and ferment and maybe post-fermentation maceration. You know, so the longer time it takes to, to put it through the winery, the more expensive it is. And it'll also tell you a little bit of time about how long it was aged and matured, you know, how well it was stored. Um, so the price point makes a difference. So if you're in the market for a $20 bottle of wine, you're going to get a, probably you're going to get a really good, nicely made, yummy wine. If you're in the market for a $50 bottle of wine, you're going to, mostly you're going to get a better wine or more concentrated, maybe something with a little bit of a longer length, maybe more, um, you know, it jumps out of the glass a little bit more, you know, because it's got a more powerful nose. Um, so I would say out of all of that, it's probably the price point. 
<laughs> okay, no, that's that. But but I mean, that's incredibly helpful because like I look at it and it's like here's an eleven dollar bottle, here's a you know a twenty two dollar bottle, and is it the same? I mean, uh, but that that's good to know is that the the price point does matter because I always assumed that it did, um, but to to hear that, yeah, no, that that that's a good metric to add to the uh, to the variable from comparison. So what's what's your everybody's default price point for a bottle when you go into the into the store? You know what's where do you start price points, Melissa? Oh, it depends on what I'm going for. If I'm going for volume, it's it's pretty low. <laughs> I know, but like, you know, if, if, you're, but, if you're buying for yourself or you know, if, dinner, if, uh, if I'm getting something dinner, like yeah. for me or for a dinner where where I want to um, where I where I maybe have company and want to. Somewhat impress them. I'd say that thirty to sixty range is where is where I usually land. Scott, uh, my baseline is twenty bucks. So I, I, I generally I. So we had this discussion. So Seema, you're gonna you're gonna hit us for this. Um, we talked about uh, the two buck Chuck from Trader Joe's, and I was like, hey, that'd be a great idea. And I don't remember if we talked about it on the show or if I was I was I was mocked. Melissa refused to do it. I, was, I, was, I refused to enter Trader Joe's, and I, I was will not mocked. do two buck chuck. Yes. I was mocked, and so I was like, you know what? And I was buying Trader Joe's, so I got you know a three dollar bottle of wine, and I'm like, screw them. What do they know? I'm going to try this three dollar bottle of wine, and it tasted like ketchup mixed with vinegar. It was the most disgusting thing. We're not going to get sponsored by Trader Joe's now, by the way. It That's was fine. the most. It was the most. It was horrible horrible and i was like okay maybe they were right on this one i'll never admit it i'm finally admitting it now but maybe maybe they were right on this one so yeah so i guess price point does does matter so stay away from the three dollar bottle of wine apparently well while we're picking on you scott oh let's, god let's let's talk about tequila yes <laughs> oh my god wine yeah. aged in tequila barrels your opinion please Sima. oh my god i didn't even know about this <laughs> yes scott drank it one time and Melissa right, we all drank it we all drank it we all drank it you drank it first yeah he drank it first that he said as each model yes and, and Melissa said it tasted like gasoline. Um, I, I, I was a little more tolerant of it, but I would never order it again. Yeah, it was sort of a novelty thing. Oh goodness! It had it had such a sharp flavor to it. Yes, it was awful. Oh, now it's awful. Oh, how how? <laughs> no, I mean, I said it, it, I mean, it was not. It was you know, I drank it. I mean, obviously, but <laughs> I would never order it. I'd never get it get it again. Yeah, or I might get it again as a novelty. Make something else drink it. Now um, it's being the mail on Monday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My price point generally is, you know, I start like twenty-five to thirty for myself. If I'm just getting, you know, a bottle to to have at home, I think, uh, you know, somewhere there. And then, you know, if obviously if I'm having gas, I'll, I'll try and get better or sort something that I've got from my seller that's a little more expensive. Um, um, my seller, my seller isn't as big as Seamus apparently. Um, how many bottles do you have in your seller, Seamus? And what's your general price point? Um, I think we have about fifteen hundred bottles. Holy smokes! <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. I guess we've kind of gotten a little bit skewed. So maybe forty dollars for our daily drinkers, and maybe 
around 80 for guests. I'm not sure. It's wow. a little skewed. Yeah. I mean, that's just way no, out. I'm, I'm, sort, I'm sort of getting there. I only have about, I don't know, about 150, 200 bottles in my cellar. Um, so I, need, I, need, I, need, I need to up my game. <laughs> <laughs> so for comparison, I, I have eight, and two of those are Trader Joe's. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on the low end. I refresh often. I, I've got anywhere between like three and 30 in the house, depending on when I went to the store. Oh, no, I, there's always a minimum of 50 in my house. Uh, you know, no, you know what? I'm sorry. One thing I've learned is that it's just so much smarter to buy by the case because you get a free bottle each time, basically, because you get the discount, right? And so it doesn't make sense to buy a bottle at a time unless, you know, you're in a rush or whatever. So, yeah. Um, so we're almost done. Final questions. We're over an hour. Was it? I think it was a good conversation. Um, actually, let's talk. Can we talk about sellers and close it? Like you know, so what makes a good seller? What's the technology in the seller? Because we're still on the technology side of it. Um, you know, can you just put them in your basement? Can you just put them on you know on a shelf in your kitchen? What's the best way to store the wine? It depends on how long you want to store it. You know, if it's just, um, you know, casual and you're keeping them for a few months here and there, you know, I don't think it, you don't want to shock the wine. So you don't want abrupt changes in temperature. But, you know, if a uh, wine is stored at room temperature, you know, assuming somewhere around 70 degrees or whatever, um, I think it's fine for a few months. Um, if you want to sell or something, you know, for... 10 years or 20 years, then you want to be a little bit more careful. And you also want to, you don't just want to keep it like around 55, 58. You also want to make sure that there's a little bit of humidity there. You don't want it to be bone dry because the, the cork will dry out. Mm. So you want some humidity, but you obviously don't want too much because then you'll get well, I mean, no, you know, in France, I don't know what the deal is, but if you go into some of the cellars, you know, there's mold growing on everything yeah. and then they just clean the bottles off. So I'm a little bit sensitive to that. I don't want that in my cellar. So I keep the humidity relatively low, you know, somewhere around 50, 55%, 60%. But, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have an official cellar. I keep it in my basement. I keep my really nice wines. I have a wine fridge that controls the temperature. I think it's it's passable. You know, it allows me to keep, you know, my more expensive wines at, at about 50 degrees. Um, you know, and my, you know, my basement is a little cooler than the rest of the house, obviously, but not not super. So, yeah, I, um, if I start up in my game, I'm, I'm, I, plan, I have an idea for, for building a cellar when I want, um, but it's, it's not, um, it hasn't come to fruition yet. Yeah, so we have a little uh, air conditioner unit dedicated to the, the wine cellar. <laughs> so I think we are a little bit extreme, but no, no. I mean, if, if you love wines and you know, and get, again, we're talking, we're talking the technology section. So the answer is get, a, get an air conditioner. Yeah, no, I, I know actually, I, I exactly what I have. You know, I have, I have the plan for the, the ventilation, etc. Um, I just need to get off my ass and actually do it at some point. Hmm. Um, cool. Um, any final words? Um, Scott, you are hosting next, right? I am. So we have uh, episode 40 coming up next. Ooh. So for the math, if you're doing the math, so we do a bottle each between the three of us. 
So times 40 episodes, that means we are now at minimum 130 bottles. It's probably closer to 200 plus in terms of what's been consumed in the last less than a year. So uh, always cool to just to just mention that. But um, the technology topic, I, I, I figured we went really heavy on the wine this time. So I thought we would get, you know, go back to the other side, talk kind of like, you know, more, I don't know, businessy kind of, you know, um, work gig type stuff. And I wanted to have a discussion. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, almost a year into the lockdown and we've all been kind of working remotely and, you know, we've all been doing, you know, kind of collaboration, you know, Zoom meetings, sending, we're not, we're not like physically together anymore. And I thought it would be interesting to do another collaboration best practices. And the reason why I say that is we talked an episode or two ago about, you know, uh, how we name files. And it was, you know, final, final, dot, you know, version, whatever it was. And uh, I literally got a resume in this week and it said uh, final, uh, final, dot, final dash V3 was what the person had put on the, the file name for their resume. And it was just like, I don't know who this is. I don't know where you're from. I don't know when you're graduating. It was like, could you be more, you know, unhelpful other than, you know, like you couldn't rename the file that you sent in to let me know that this isn't really the final. It was what you thought it was. So like, I thought we would talk about kind of collaboration, best practices, you know, what's going on, you know, we're a year into zoom meetings, we're a year into, you know, um, putting things in teams or whatever it is. And, and what's, what, what do people still not get? And it'd be like, Oh, we should all be like really used to this. But a year later, there, there, there are just some things that I would like to vent about that clearly we, we haven't got yet. So that's the technology side, the, the wine side, which is what we'll lead with. I'm going to leave up to SEMA because SEMA is our special guest. So what I would say is that we're going to make Colin and Melissa drink a white because I will drink a white. But I want you to pick the white and I want it to be like just a I don't want this to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark where we have to like crawl through snake pits and, you know, fight ghosts. Just and let her like pick. That. Just we let just her want, pick. Yeah. We'll do the work. Okay. <laughs> She's making a suggestion. We'll do the work. Right. Yeah, but but I, so something that's achievable. Right. Yeah. Nothing that requires us to go. You know, ride. You know, um, oh, are you still complaining about me getting making you drink an orange wine? So in one please? episode, I made, a, I made a vegan orange wine, and it's got to have to hunt high and low for my orange wine. Oh, yeah. Jakob Grovner and all those guys. No. That's awesome. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, so what what would the white wine be? I think you guys should try some volcanic wines. So try Vol the Assyrtico and the Grillo and... Um, Actually, um, Fiano, Falangina, Greco di Tufo. There's a whole bunch of Italian volcanic wines, even Suave. Suave Classico. Oh, maybe I should make you try that because you probably think of Suave as this gross, sweet 70s yeah. wine, right? Yes. That's, yeah. Whereas it's actually a really lean, crisp, neutral. It's it's actually a really good food wine. So. Oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. So volcanic white wines. Yeah. Got it. We're locked in. So that's it. Collaboration, best practices, and uh, volcanic white wines. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, not, that Suave Classico is not bad. That's bad. Wine.com has it for like 17 bucks or yeah. 18 bucks. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. There's a, tw there's a $20 one too. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
Okay. All right, Colin. Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Seema. Thank you very much for being our first guest and all of your fantastic wine knowledge. Thank you. Um, yes, thank put, you. Putting me to shame. So, every, yeah, I mean, everyone knows Seema is, 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 a friend of, is a good friend of mine. Actually, final parting thought, Seema. Best wine to pair with bacon. Seema, and I, Seema is a bacon-fest friend of mine. Oh. Um, so uh, I, I thought I'd put this out of the challenge for her before, before we end the episode. Just... Uh... Bacon, something smoky, something delicious. I would go with a Northern Rhone. Um, so if you're feeling like splurging, you know, a uh, Cornas or a Cote Roti. If you're not feeling like splurging, a uh, San Joseph. Oh. I think something heavy, something awesome. Yeah. Well, anyhow, so, sorry for that final question. Thank you very much for being a first guest, Seema. It's fantastic. I hope you had a good time <laughs> just did. fucking wine with us. Um, this is what we do. If you want to come back, let me know. We just, you know, we sit and we talk random tech and wine and just, you know, have, have a good time. No, this um, was and by the way, it's also, awesome. it's also great to see you. It was um, great to see it, you, it, it, It's been two months since I've seen you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we, always, we always have a joke that Bacon Fest is always two months away. Uh, um, Keeps us yes. happy to think of that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank everybody. Um, um, we will see you back here in a week. Um, please thank all of our fantastic listeners. I think we're almost up to 100 listeners a week now, so it's mm-hmm. a big, big episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know Seema really, really Actually, so Seema, you have a blog. Do you want to promote your blog? Give a plug quickly? Oh, yeah. It's just on um, commonwealthwineschool.com. And if you go under About Us, you'll see the blog. Uh, link and I write almost every week and I hope you enjoy what I write because it's um, it's really fun to write and I get to say what I want. Yeah, I, I just read it this week when you said it. I didn't know you were doing that, but it's awesome. <laughs> so it's commonwealthwine.com? Commonwealthwineschool.com. Excellent. Okay, cool. Excellent. Everybody check it out. Thank you so much for being our first guest, Ema. Um, really, really appreciate it. Thank you for being a fantastic friend as well. Um, thank you, everybody. Scott, you want to say goodbye? Thank you, everybody. Seema, thank you so much. Learned so much today. So this was awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, welcome. Thank you. Melissa? Thank you. Really. And I, this was so informative and fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And Seema, take us out. Um, go check out this new website I found called alitwines.com, A-L-I-T.com. It just sounds like a fantastic idea. It's a wine collective. Autonomous collective. Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, Please have a great week and we will see you then. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun.